Father in heaven, I want to pray that you'd bless us as we talk now about the, some of the details of uh, how we can, can make the farm a ministry to our community, what we're doing in Fresno in specific, and ask your blessings, your Holy Spirit, to be with us here and now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, part two here, uh, I'm going to do serving our communities. How can we serve our community through the farm? And I want to start with this quote here. You're all familiar with this, uh, or most of you anyway. Ministry of Healing, page 143. Ellen White writes, Christ's method, what? Alone. Will give true success in reaching people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them. He ministered to their needs and won their confidence. Then he bade them follow me. Uh, I want to ask you, I don't want to be offensive to anybody, but I want to be honest. Whose method? And what plurality is used there? That's singular. Are there any other methods that will give true success? Will your method give true success? Will the methods of our seminaries and educational institutions bring true success? Will the, the, the methods of Willow Creek or Saddleback Church bring true success? Um, yes, as long as those ministries are following that method, then that ministry can be successful. I want to ask, though, what's true success? Is success measured by numbers? I know you're saying no, but I don't believe you. Because everybody in our world measures success by what? By the numbers. Number of converts, number of baptisms. Is success measured at all by the numbers? Well, it gets to be a tricky question, doesn't it? Well, is it by conversion ratio? You know what I mean by that? You guys, how many of you knocked on doors this summer? Okay. How many doors does it take you to sell a book? One in every five, one in every ten, one in every... That's your conversion ratio. How many presentations do you have to give to get a sale? How many doors do you have to knock on and get a sale? How many Bible study contacts do you have to have to get a convert? How many people in in the business world, how many people click on your website before they sign up? That's your conversion rate. Do we measure success by the number? Well, I didn't have a lot of conversions, but I got three out of four. That's pretty good, 75%. If you're playing baseball and could get a, a, a hit three out of four times, you'd be pr- pretty good. If you go to Las Vegas and could win the lottery three out of four times, you'd be doing pretty good. Um, three out of four is pretty good. Is the conversion ratio how we measure success? Is it the type of convert that we have that, that is the measure of success? In other words, was the baptismal candidate a Christian beforehand? Were they a pagan? Were they heathen? Were they Catholic? Were they Muslim? Were they Jew? 
Were they backslidden Adventists? Is that how we measure success? Is it measured by relationships? I don't want to be rhetorical. Tell me what you think. How, what is true success? Doing God's will. Almost implies not being worried about the results. Yeah, I really appreciate that point. It's a good perspective. What if success was won by the number of people who are willing to put their confidence in you? Even if they don't become Adventists. Even if they're not baptized. What if, think about this. This is a stretch. I know, okay. Everybody take a deep breath. It's typical to measure success by the number of baptisms. But what if somebody has confidence in you, but hasn't been baptized yet? Have you succeeded? What if you have sympathized with someone and ministered to someone, but they haven't yet given their confidence to you? Have you succeeded? On the note of the type of converts. Is there any type of person that Jesus didn't have success with? He got a few of them, but not the same number, I agree. How do you do with women? Come on. Do you do well with women? How do you do with men? Pretty good. How do you do with kids? How did he do with the Jews? I'm talking about Jewish people, not... He did good with them. How do you do with Romans? How about the Samaritans? How about centurions? How about, um, you go down the list. Is there any type of person that Jesus didn't have success with? His method worked on everybody, except for those who were too proud to accept his help. Women, children, men, politicians, religious leaders, poor people, working class people, regardless of ethnicity, it worked really well on everybody. What was his conversion ratio? I don't know. It was pretty high. I mean, I haven't seen anybody preach a sermon yet that was so powerful that the whole community was at the church door by the time the sun set. Pretty good success, isn't it? How about numbers? Did he do well with numbers? Yeah, he did really well with numbers. I want to throw one other one up here. What have you measured your success by the impact your ministry had on the people who didn't like you? I'm not, I'm not belittling the, the previous ones, by the way. This is just an addition. What have you measured your ministry by your effect upon people who aren't supposed to like you? I, I told you my teaser this morning. Um, I, I told you this little teaser this morning. I want to tell you some of the stories from the farm and, and what we're doing. And I want to tell you something. Some of it, we're not even trying. We're not even trying to, to do or reach certain people. We're just trying to do our stuff. So we started an organic farm on a school campus. And to a lot of people in California, a lot of people around the world, that's just pretty cool by itself. So we made friends with somebody in the local community who had happened to find out that we had a farm on a school campus. He told, uh, he told somebody else in Sacramento about our farm. And that company in Sacramento was organizing an environmental justice bus tour through the Central Valley of California. 
specifically highlighting the impact that pesticides and agricultural chemicals have on young people because in California, a lot of chemicals are used in proximity to schools. So they wanted to visit a school that was chemical-free. So they packed 80 people on a bus from the Department of Pesticide Regulation, from the EPA, uh, from different environmental groups and legislators and the whole thing. And they showed up at Fresno Adventist Academy, and me and the principal told them our simple little story about what we're trying to do on the farm. And that was it. They called us. We didn't call them. They asked us to come. We didn't ask them. They showed up. We told our story, and that was it. They left. End of story. No, it wasn't the end of the story. Several months later, somebody calls me. She says, you won't remember me, but my name is so-and-so, and I was on this bus tour. And we were just really impressed with what you're doing at your school and how you have an organic farm on your campus. And, and I was telling my boss about what you were doing, and his son goes to a school in Sacramento, and they're doing an, an environmental summit, they called it, at their school. And uh, so I told my boss about you, and um, we would like to know if you'd speak at this school in Sacramento and talk to them about farming and education. I said, sure. What school is it? Jesuit High School in Carmichael? I was like, excuse me? Look, i turn the microphone off here for a second. I'm as Adventist as you can get. Do you know who Jesuits are? Do you know their history? Do you know that my adrenaline went through the roof? When she said, would you speak to a group of high school Jesuit boys? Now, that probably really wasn't on the, uh, the recording now, but I kind of didn't want it to be because how do Adventists feel about that group of secret people? Come on, how do you feel about them? Warm and fuzzy? Want that guy as your neighbor? Souls to be saved. I said, absolutely, yes, I'll do it. So what would you like me to talk about? Farming and education. Okay. So I'm talking to the coordinator lady at the school. Had a really good conversation with her. I could tell she was spiritual. I said, hey, so you're obviously a religious institution. Would you mind if I shared from the perspective of the Bible? Because I believe the Bible has a lot to say about how you treat the environment. She said, absolutely. I would love it. So I crafted my presentation on a typical Adventist model, mind, body, and soul. And I said the presentation was entitled Educating the Whole Man, Mind, Body, Soul. So I stood before 300 boys at Jesuit High School in Sacramento, and I talked to them about the impact of farming on the mind and how it improves academics when you get your duff off a uh, chair and you get to work with your hands and get some physical exercise. And, and, you know, you stop confining kids to a desk all the time and they might be excited about education. And it might improve academic performance. Actually, it doesn't might. It's actually, it does a lot, and science is proving that to be the case. And I talked, about, uh, uh, I talked about the body and how, despite the fact we have the world's largest youth sports program ever. Did you catch that? In America, we have the largest youth sports program in the history of planet Earth. But we have the biggest youth health epi- epidemic our country's ever had. That makes sense? That makes no sense at all. So I talked to them about farming and how you get kids out and they get exercise and they get to moving and, and how it's actually healthy for you. And then 
I talked to them about the soul. And I talked to them about how God, Jesuit boys, by the way, I talked to them about how God, in the beginning of the world, created for Adam and Eve the perfect occupation out of a heart profoundly in love with each one of them. Each one of them. I shared the gospel from an Adventist perspective. You realize just plagiarized the book Education is all I did? (laughs) And I got to share it with within the precincts, the building, the walls of a Jesuit educational institution. And I did nothing at all to invite it. We did not call them. We did not invite them. We didn't start the bus tour. We didn't invite them. I didn't invite the guy who told the guy about us, which got the bus tour. We started none of it. All they heard is we got an organic farm on a school in Fresno. And the guy shows up one day and says, hey, will you show us your farm? And that turned into a bus tour, which turned into a speaking appointment. Did nothing. The thing that's most profound about this is this quote right here. A knowledge of how to cultivate the land will make rough places much smoother. And in the context, I didn't put it on here, in the context, she's actually talking about persecution. 19th volume of manuscript releases, you can look this up on your own. This knowledge will be counted a great blessing even by our who? So I spent the whole first hour on what I spent it on. Because Jesus' model of ministry is the only one that will bring true success. What if you could model your ministry in such a way that even your enemies, though they don't like you or agree with you, still respected you? That's pretty crazy. This story reminds me, actually, of the story of Joseph. Because Joseph was hated by his brothers, thrown into prison in Egypt, only to get out of prison, to be accused by the guy he had served faithfully, to wind up back in prison, only to be forgotten by Pharaoh's servants, to sit in prison for a little bit longer. But Joseph became a blessing to Egypt and to Israel because he had a knowledge of how to cultivate the land. You say, what are you talking about? Well, Joseph was a farm boy, right? His dad was a shepherd, and they grew agricultural crops. They were a farm family. They were a pastoral family in the most literal sense of the word, pastoral. And... um, If you think about, I'm going to challenge you to go back to that story of Joseph and Pharaoh's dream. Because God gave Pharaoh a farm dream. Pharaoh has a dream of some cows that are fat and plump, got eaten by some skinny cows. And then he has a dream of some fat and plump crops that were eaten by some thin, withered crops. And it says the whole thing was kicked off by a wind from the east. This is all just very simple agriculture, very simple geography, weather patterns, etc. What's east of Egypt is the deserts of Arabia. An east wind brought in dry air from Arabia, which meant drought, which dried out the crops, which dried out the forage, which the cattle were eating, 
And Pharaoh was so ignorant and disconnected from food, he had no clue what any of it meant. Joseph's like, this is pretty simple. Fat cows eaten by skinny cows because they were hungry. They were hungry because the crops got all dried up. They were dried up because there was an east wind and there was no rain. Yeah, uh, Pharaoh, you got seven years to store all the food you can possibly imagine. And Pharaoh's like, oh. I want to push this point just a little bit. You realize that in Daniel, when Daniel had his vision and dream, he didn't understand any of it. And so God had to give him another vision and dream to interpret it. And when Daniel saw, or when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream, the, 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 the guy with the multi-mineral components, the head of gold, you know, all that, Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, had no clue what it meant. But you know who also didn't know what it meant? Daniel didn't know what it meant. So he and his three friends had to get out on their knees and beg and beg and beg for God to show them uh, what the dream meant so they wouldn't lose their life. You realize in the story of Joseph, God gave Joseph no interpretation, no explanation. What God did is he gave Pharaoh a dream that would relate to and make sense to Joseph given his particular agricultural background. Joseph heard the story, heard the dream. He says, that makes sense. Here's what you got. Seven years. Get ready. And Pharaoh said, you're the guy. You're hired. I think that story is really interesting because you think Pharaoh liked Joseph? He could care less about Joseph. He didn't care about Joseph, except that Joseph had the answers to Pharaoh's problems. And Pharaoh had respect for Joseph because he had solutions. I think that's what she's getting at right here. A knowledge of how to cultivate the land will make rough places much smoother. This knowledge will be counted a great blessing even by our enemies. There's something very subtle here. Why would they count it a blessing? Because, wait, say it again. Because they're benefited by it also. They're benefited, or maybe we say they're dependent on it also. Why don't you just throw out a wild scenario here, okay? Uh, there are less than uh, 1% of the American population is in farming. It's a very, very small number of farmers in the U.S. There are actually more people in the U.S. prison system than there are farmers. The average age of the American farmer is in the 60s. This is going to get worse every year. Despite the fact that you really, really like your phone, your phone doesn't feed you. Despite the fact you have a deep and overwhelming admiration for Walmart and Costco, they actually don't grow it. Somewhere, there is a guy like me. And he's growing the food that this country eats. We are utterly dependent upon those people. Just use your imagination. What if those people were Adventists? What if they were Christian? What if people interested in local food were dependent upon an Adventist for their food? They have a different model, but yes. On our farm... We have the capacity to produce about 500 boxes of produce 
family-sized boxes of produce each week. If the world fell apart, which it seems rapidly headed towards doing, how would those 500 people feel about me? When a terrorist strikes the transportation grid and shuts down transportation across I-40 or I-5 up from California, do you think they'll care that I believe that when you die, you go to sleep in the grave? Not really. What if we could make our enemies at least respect us if not like us, or be dependent upon us. I talked to you about farm-based community outreach, um, and I want to put a shift in your expectations here when it comes to outreach. And this is uh, Ellen White writing here from Christ Object Lessons, and she's doing this from the perspective of agriculture. In the tilling of the soil, in disciplining and subduing the land, lessons may be constantly learned. No one would think of settling upon a raw piece of land, expecting it at once to yield a harvest. Pause. When you go to Walmart, you instantly expect to get something. When you order Amazon Prime, you expect your package to be there when? You can see that we are a patron of Amazon here. <laughs> When you go to Verizon or AT&T, you expect to walk out of that store with a new phone when? Right then. So when we do evangelism, when do we expect results? In precisely 24 Bible studies. If not immediately after the one on the Sabbath. Okay? Farming doesn't work that way. I was talking to somebody earlier today about farming. Like any typical business, farms take three to five years to establish. Somebody told me, actually multiple farmers have told me, you need at least three years of cash to start a farm. At least three years of cash to start a farm. One guy said, you better have three years worth of money to live on because you won't be taking a paycheck for the first three years if you're starting a farm. Small scale, striking out on your own, starting from nothing, three years. He said, most people quit farming right before they figure it out. Because we're too impatient. We expect to learn it right away. We don't like failure. We fail initially. We give up permanently. How many of you feel like you have a black thumb? Anybody here try to grow something? You killed it? I recently talked to a lady. She says, I could kill a fake plant. (laughs) Listen to this as she goes on with it. Earnestness, diligence, and persevering labor are to be put forth in treating the soil preparatory to sowing the seed. Hold up, my friends. Apply this to evangelism. It can take years and years of working on somebody's heart before you should ever drop the seed of truth in their ears. Sometimes somebody's already done the work for you and you can come by and sow your seeds on prepped ground. 
our church is very good at getting converts from other Christian denominations. Right? We know this? We get Baptists, Catholics to convert to a different brand of Christianity. But we do very, very poorly with people that have zero church background at all. Because just like the ground, it can take years of effort and relationship building to get their heart to the point where they have confidence in you and you can speak those next two words, which were, follow me. me. That's why Christ's method alone will bring true success. Because Jesus himself planted the Garden of Eden. He was the first master gardener. And he understands the soil of the earth. And he understands the soil of the heart. And he understands that even us in this room took years of his labor. Anybody here stubborn? Told God, thank you, no thank you, go take a hike for a few years. It took me a year from the first time I heard of Adventism till I got to the point where I was even willing to take Bible studies and be baptized. Guys are slow. Earnestness, diligence, persevering labor to be put forth in treating the soil preparatory to sowing the seed. I'll say that again. Years of effort for some people's hearts before you ever speak the first word of truth. Some people are that way. In our instant gratification society, I did this once. I told a guy, guy I worked with, co-worker, was making friends with him, told a guy the Pope was the Antichrist. <laughs> End of Bible studies. Literally, he never talked to me again. Literally. I didn't think so at the time. <laughs> it is okay. I didn't fail, but I wasn't very smart either. I, I was not uh, well trained, I should say, at that point. I had been a Christian for about a year. Too much ambition. So it is in the spiritual work of the human heart. Those who would be benefited by the tilling of the soil must go forth with the word of God in their hearts. See the relationship. This is about expectations. They will then find fallow ground of the heart broken by the softening, subduing influence of the Holy Spirit. Unless hard work is bestowed on the soil, it will not yield a harvest. So with the soil of the heart. The Spirit of God must work upon it to refine and discipline it before it can bring forth fruit to the glory of God. This is a conversation about expectations. You cannot farm fast when you're starting from nothing. And when you're dealing with people, it's exactly the same. Some people take years of effort before it's time to speak the word. So I want to talk about a few different points here, and we'll go through these kind of quickly. Um, I want to talk about farm-based community outreach to the poor, to the sick, to the heathen, the wealthy, to schools and their youth, Adventists or non-Adventists, and to other farmers. And uh, we'll go through these here one at a time. Isaiah 58. I need someone to do some reading for me. We are going to read... I can't remember through which verse. I'll know it when I hear it. Who's my volunteer here? 
Okay, would you? Isaiah 58, uh, we'll start in verse 1. When does your light break forth speedily? When is that part of the verse fulfilled? After verse 7. After verse 7. When you start dealing your bread to the poor, the hungry. When you start loosening people's burdens. When you let the oppressed go free. When you start breaking people's yokes. Think Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30. That's when your light goes forth. I'll be very honest with you, vulnerable, tell you about myself. For many years, my perception of evangelism was changing people's doctrinal beliefs. I remember saying some really pushy things, some really hard things to people in the public who were taking Bible studies from me because my paradigm was to change their thinking not to win their heart. Your light breaks forth when you start dealing your bread to the hungry. Your light breaks forth when you start breaking people's yokes. Christ's method alone will give true success. He mingled with people as one who wanted to change their minds. As one that desired their good. He shared with them their disappointment and their theological incorrectness. He gave them sympathy. He won their confidence by caring for them in their everyday life. Did you know that agriculture was God's designed system of welfare, food stamps, in ancient Israel? The uh, Ellen White was traveling through England in uh, health sketches here, or historical sketches here. And as she was going through England, she saw some things going on in England and wrote the following words. More than this, the Israelites were instructed to sow and reap their fields for six successive years. But every seventh year, they were commanded to let the land rest. Whatever grew of itself was to be gathered by the poor. And what they left, the beasts of the field were to eat. This was to impress the people with the fact that it was God's land, which they were only permitted, I added the word only, permitted to possess for a time. You and I think, oh, it's ours forever. No, it's only ours for a time. He was the rightful owner, the original proprietor, and that he, he would have special consideration made for the poor and the unfortunate. This provision was made to lessen suffering, to bring some ray of hope, to flash some gleam of sunshine into the lives of the suffering and distressed. If the laws given by God had continued to be carried out, how different would be the present condition of the world, morally, spiritually, and temporally? Selfishness and self-importance would not be manifested as now, but each would cherish a kind regard for the happiness and welfare of others, and such widespread destitution and human wretchedness as is now seen in most parts of England and Ireland would not exist. Instead of the poorer classes being kept under the iron heel of oppression by the wealthy, instead of having other men's brains to think and plan for them in temporal as well as spiritual things, they would have some chance for independence of thought and action. Let me share with you my heart. You are seeing the unraveling 
of society. You are watching what will be the most horrific demonstration of the principles of selfishness the world has ever seen. Every day you turn on your radio or your internet or your TV, whatever you get your news from, you can see and feel the rapidity, the quickness with which the world is unraveling. And one of the big issues the last few years has been the whole idea of the super wealthy and the super marginalized. In the Central Valley of California, right here in this valley, which is the agricultural production mecca of the world. In other words, sorry, this valley produces more food than any other place in the world. But the city of Fresno is a food desert where some people have zero access to fresh food, but they can find a liquor store or a jack-in-the-box. Because all of the food, the majority of the food, is exported. It's, it's grown in mass quantities for the export market, but people in Fresno can't buy a stinking peach because it's going to China. Now, listen, it's not the government's fault. It's actually the church's fault. Because the church's responsibility was to be the one that dealt bread to the hungry. The church's responsibility was the one to break the burden and the oppression off the person's back. But in this election right now, I don't want to get into politics, but in this election right now, there are many people that will vote Democratic on the sheer basis that they think that the Democratic Party will provide for them what the wealthy have withheld from them and robbed from them. What she wrote right here, instead of the poorer classes being kept under the iron heel of oppression by the wealthy, God's system of religion, and particularly agriculture, was designed to be food stamps or SNAP, or Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, as they're trying to call it now. So, go back to Jesus and his ministry. How did he get so much public favor? By caring for people. And food is the most basic and essential of human necessities. You will do better naked than hungry. I don't mean to be inappropriate. You'll do better without a house than you will without food. She goes on with this line of thinking to share a couple of the other thoughts with you. The more I see, this is about Avondale, the more I see the school property, the more I'm amazed at the cheap price at which it's been purchased. When the board wants to go back on this purchase, this is Ellen White writing, I will pledge myself to secure the land. I will settle it with poor families. I will have missionary families come out from, from America and do, somebody read the next uh, five words. In educating the people how to till the soil and make it productive. I have planned what can be raised in different places. I have said, here can be alfalfa, there can be strawberries, here can be sweet corn and common corn, and this ground will raise good potatoes while that will raise good food, fruit of all kinds. So in imagination, I have all the different places flourishing in condition. Now, now she's being very personal here. 
and I want to I point this out. Ellen White was very good at growing food. I read it again. I have planned. I have said. She had her secretary do the planning. Did you know that James White actually wrote a book on how to grow small fruits and how to can and preserve food? Did you know that? James White, you can find it on the Ellen White CD-ROM, actually wrote a book on growing food and canning. James White, the preacher guy. So what if we took that model right there? What if we as a farm took poor people and provided an opportunity for them to raise their own food or some sort of thing like that? How many poor people do you know around you? You realize what she's saying is 100% true. In the Old Testament, there were no handouts. You could walk on a farmer's field anytime you wanted. Now, that kind of bothers me a little bit, just being honest with you. <laughs> and you could eat whatever you wanted. Jesus and the disciples actually had that happen in Matthew chapter 12, walking through the grain field on the Sabbath. I'd have to wrestle with that one a little bit. But there were no handouts. The poor person actually had to walk through the field and gather the stuff. No handouts. We do want to demonstrate what can be done with the land when it is properly worked. When once this is done, we shall be able to help the poor who live in Australia in a far better way than by giving them money as we've had to do in the past. That's a very interesting statement. Um, Christian farmers can do real missionary work in helping poor to find homes on the land and in teaching them how to till the soil and make it productive. I want to ask something. Why did she use the word real? Because somebody is sitting in this room, I appreciate your interest in my presentations here today, but somebody is sitting in this room and the temptation is there. Yeah, but this is not quite as important as giving a Bible study on the investigative judgment in the 2300 days and the close of Earth's history. Anybody be honest and say, yeah, that kind of went through my mind at some point? <laughs> I'll be honest, it went through my mind. She said real missionary work because just the act of growing food or teaching someone to grow food is missionary work. It's a change in our paradigm. Now, here's a comment about the sick. And everybody recognized that our healthcare system is in... Okay, um, everybody realizes our health is declining as a country. Tell those who are sick that if the hosts of those who were dyspeptics and consumptives that means they had digestive issues and, um, yes. If they turned into what? They would overcome disease, dispense with drugs and doctors, and recover health. It's going to be very difficult for the Adventist medical establishment, <laughs> and I don't mean to be rude by saying that or anything, but um, very simple natural remedy. Change your vocation. Become a farmer. That's quite wild, isn't it? That's kind of interesting. Uh, the heathen. The most effective way to teach the heathen who know not God is through his what? Through his works. See, this is where... Uh, I'm sorry, hobby horse right here for just a minute. 
This is where our church is very, very lacking. I'm not being critical. I'm not being negative or derogatory. It's just honest evaluation. If I look back on my own experience in, in ministry, I was deficient here. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody except for myself. Didn't do good with people who weren't already religious. We as a church, generally speaking, uh, and I, I, let me broaden it, Christians as a whole don't care about sustainability, don't care about the environment, don't care about recycling, don't care about local food, don't care about organic, don't care about eating seasonal, don't care about eating fresh. We don't care about animal welfare and animal rights and ethical treatment of animal, animals. We, you know, we look at those folks as tree huggers and wackos. Right? We do. We don't relate to those people. Because it's all going to burn anyway, is the mentality of many Christians. Many Christians. I can tell you, unfortunately, that a lot of those people right there are interested in food, are interested in the environment, are interested in local are interested in organic, are interested in seasonal. Many of the best vegetarian-run restaurants, they're Buddhist or they're something else. So here's my point here. When we, when we run farms, the farm is the peak of God's natural world. The act of turning a seed into something that's edible is an absolute miracle. An absolute miracle. When envi- I want you to really think about this. When environmentalists give you their speech, they are demanding a morality and an ethic that has put them in the corner of their having to be a god. Because if you really believe in evolution, if you really believe in survival of the fittest, then it doesn't, care what we, it doesn't matter what we do to planet Earth because whatever comes next will be better. That's survival of the fittest. That's evolution. That's, that's Darwinian evolution. But the moment you become an, evolution, uh, an environmentalist, the moment you start caring about natural and organic and caring for the creation, you are immediately pinning yourself logically against the reality that there must be a God. And the only thing that's lacking is someone to make that point. Christians, Adventists in particular, who understand the Sabbath as a memorial of creation the most, should be the foremost in demanding that the environment be treated in a sustainable, ethical way. Because if you mar the face of creation... You mar the evidence of the Creator. And so our disinterest in nature is silently and subtly saying to the world, it's not real. There's not a Creator. Because if you really believed that, why would you trash the place? So I'm not saying this is the only way to reach the heathen. Let me tell you a couple stories. Uh, I'm going to tie a couple of them here together before I forget one about the poor. 
We made friends through a local food networking meeting with a lady who's on food stamps. She is not a Christian. Not quite sure, actually, what... Uh, by the way, here, real quick. I'm going to embarrass a couple people. Uh, Casey, stand up. This is Casey Smith. Hello, Casey everyone. works with us on the farm here. And next to him is a certain special person. Uh, stand up here, Diana. Special to him. And Diana is a member of our board. As I mentioned, we're a nonprofit. Uh, Chris here, jump up. Chris has an interesting story, but Chris has been volunteering on the farm for the last couple weeks, helping us do a remodel project. And one more person. This is my lovely wife. And the only person that's missing is Timothy Hyde. He's not in here. So, uh, Cassandra. Uh, she said to me, hey, um, I'd like to volunteer on the farm. And we've worked it out with her where she works in exchange for produce. So within our right as a nonprofit organization, as a for-profit business, I mentioned earlier, we cannot take volunteers. But early in uh, our working with her, I put her with my wife. And they just fell onto a conversation about our kids' names and her kids' names. And my two kids over here, Omega and Orion, and we picked their names on purpose, uh, Omega Mercy. We are to give the last message of mercy to the world. Orion Justice, Mercy and Justice are partners and twins. Uh, and when Jesus comes, he's supposed to come through the open space in the constellation. We explain all of this to a non-believer. And then she asked if she could come back and volunteer again. Works pretty good. <laughs> we made a lot of friends with people in the community. Uh, just local people who are interested in food that have no religious persuasion at all. Uh, there's a young man uh, also, this is a little bit more complicated here, so going to this local food meeting, I met his aunt, and she started buying produce from the farm. Uh, she then told me about her uh, nephew, who's studying at Oregon State University, uh, studying agriculture, and uh, he's been volunteering on the farm this summer. Uh, we told him that you volunteer for a few hours every day. We'll take a portion of the time at the end of every day and talk to you about agriculture, what we're doing, why we're doing it, how it works. Whatever you want to know, we'll tell you. And uh, they were talking this week out in the field. It turns out that he and his aunt are both studying about Seventh-day Adventists right now. Okay. Just through food. We didn't seek them out. We didn't hunt them down. We didn't talk to them about the Bible. He uh, was working with you, right? And he brought it up on his own. You know, he knows we're on a Seventh-day Adventist campus, but that's the extent of it. Um, we've got some other people that we're working with that are clearly not religious at all. And just the connection through food has opened doors of conversation that would have never existed through any other form of uh, evangelism or ministry. The wealthy, and I just want to say a brief word about this, the price point of organic produce, which is a whole discussion by itself, is more easily in the range of those people who have disposable income. We on the farm do a home delivery service. For an extra fee, we'll deliver the produce to your door. I can tell you that almost all of the people that go for the home delivery option are the people who have a little extra cash. And I can tell you that just on last Tuesday, I spent an hour in somebody's home talking to them about the current state of our world, found out that she's Christian, 
talked about the farm, us being a nonprofit, all sorts of things we talked about, clearly communicating to her that we are also Christian and have a similar value system to her. And it was all because I'd personally deliver produce to her door every week. And again, I'm stressing this because do you think that after Jesus worked the first miracle that it was very hard for him to get repeat clients? When, when we do ministry our way, we have to fight to make ministry happen. But when we broaden our scope of ministry and, and outreach and service to the community from a heart that sincerely desires to do people good, the natural result is for them to be interested. Um, I want to say one more thing about this here. Um, American produce is declining in value, in quality, and in flavor. And there are people who are really interested in high quality. Modern agriculture has emphasized the production, quantity-oriented philosophy, and the quality is not there, and a lot of people recognize that, and they're looking for the alternative, the real stuff. And just by offering that, you're suggesting that something is more important to you than just the money that you can get from your customer. And it opens doors of opportunity uh, to talk to them about other things. Why do you farm the way you do? Because ultimately, I care about you. And as a farmer, I'm growing food that people are going to eat. And I have a responsibility to realize that's personal. My interaction, my impact upon people as a farmer is very real, very profound. They are going to eat what I grow with my hands. That's personal. And ultimately, I care about them. Um, Schools, briefly, and then one other thing. American education is currently ranked 30th in the world. Actually, I think it's 29th, to be literal. Finland, to say very briefly, has done a number of things in their educational system that are profoundly biblical. And all I can do is encourage you to study Finland's educational system. They have ranked at the top or near the top for many years now in academic performance. I'll give you one example. Kids don't even start school until they're seven. Ellen White says they shouldn't start until they're what? About eight, is what she says. They have more hands-on learning and other things. They're doing on accident what Ellen White and the Bible say we should do on purpose. And so with American education declining, there is a huge conflict in the Fresno public school system right now about its performance. Now is the moment for Adventists to reevaluate our educational philosophies, our educational mentality, and demonstrate that an agricultural-based educational system is the system that will provide the best results. And once you do that, in contrast to what the world is doing, there will be lots and lots and lots of questions about the success that you're having as a church. And, yeah. Yeah, if you read about Finland, they really broke the box. Uh, really interesting, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One last word here on farmers. Very simple quote. The farm, if worked intelligently, is capable of furnishing fruit and other produce for the school. 
The teachers, both in their work in the schoolroom and on the farm, should constantly seek to reach a higher standard that they may be better able to teach the students how to care for the trees, the berries, the vegetables, and the grains that shall be raised. This will be pleasing to God and will bring the approval and respect of those in the community who understand the principles of agriculture. I want to highlight this again. This is about our communities giving us their respect and their approval on the basis of one simple thing, a well-run farm. People will respect that type of activity, even if it's not overtly evangelistic. Just a well-run farm will get people's attention and make them want to ask questions. Um, I want to, we, we need to take our break here, but uh, I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you at the same time. We on our farm get no credit. We're inexperienced. We lack knowledge. We've got lots of deficiencies. I, myself, all of us have deficiencies on our farm. We simply made a commitment that we're going to try to do what God's asked us to do. That's it. That's it. And all of these things have happened just because we've done it. I want to repeat. The interactions we've had with our community have in zero cases been because we invited ourselves. People have found out about us and come to us. And God gets the glory for that and the credit for that because we didn't do it ourselves. And the more we replicate this, the better and more interesting that this is going to be for us. So appreciate your interest. Let's pray and take a break. <coughs> Father in heaven, thank you, for, thank you for leading us. Thank you for convicting us. Thank you for, for working the soil of our own hearts and bringing us to a point where we'll yield to your impressions. Uh, Lord, I thank you for, for what you've done in my own life and how you're leading me. It's not of my own doing. Blessed be your name, Lord, and for all of us. Praise you. In Jesus' name we say, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.